Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. As you may well know, the prosperity gospel is one of the fastest growing teachings in the African church. With many desiring to be well and rich, churches are full to capacity with people looking for wealth and healing. The prosperity gospel teaches that believers have a right to wealth and to health on account of the death of Jesus, and that if you are a Christian or a believer in Christ, you are entitled to riches, you are supposed to have long life and enjoy all the wonderful things that the world can ever give. But as we think through that definition or understanding of the prosperity gospel, is it really true that God promises to bless us with money? Is it God's will for you to be rich, for instance? Now, many pastors and self-proclaimed prophets today would say, yes, you are supposed to be rich. You are supposed to have everything that you will ever need because you are a child of God. They will teach you that God promises to give you prosperity if you only have enough faith. They will say that because God loves you, he wants you to be successful and happy and guarantees that you will have good things. Now, this prosperity message sounds amazing, doesn't it? Of course, everybody wants to be successful. I am yet to hear of anybody who would vote for poverty. While many of us might be suspicious about being wealthy, none of us would want to be poor, certainly. Everyone knows what it's like to struggle or to suffer and what it's like to want to have enough care for yourselves and your loved ones. As a matter of fact, millions of people, especially believers around the world today, are poor. They are looking for help and hope. So why not give them a message of hope like the prosperity gospel? You can see why it is very appealing. It thrives in a ground of desperation of many millions of people who are hungry for hope, for help, for healing, and many other things. While this gospel is appealing and indeed sounds like it is the solution to the many people that are looking for help and hope, there are many reasons why every Christian, every serious believer should beware of this too good to be true gospel of prosperity. Now I want to share with you a couple of these reasons, but let me begin with the first two. One of the reasons or the problems with the prosperity gospel is that as appealing as it is, it is based on only part of the truth. Indeed, someone has said that half-truth are also half lies. What you find with the prosperity gospel is that it will have some truth in what it teaches, but most of what it teaches will be mixed up with a lot of error and falsehood. For instance, it will teach that God does love you, that God does care about your needs, but this truth is the whole truth. The prosperity gospel usually takes biblical truth like God's love, like God's goodness, and pulls them out of their scriptural context and makes false conclusions out of them. What we would call scripture twisting. It may read the scriptures, it may interpret the scriptures, 
but the interpretation and often the application are far from what the Bible intended to communicate. You will hear of messages of how God loves you, and indeed it's true, God loves us. But the main way that God shows his love for us is not by giving us prosperity in this earthly life, but by more so giving us eternal life through Christ. And these Bible passages that I will mention clearly show this. Take a look for instance at John 3 verse 16. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then you come to another passage like First John 4 from 9 to 10. It says that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Please mark, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not as a guarantee for prosperity and healing. But we also have another verse in Romans 5 verse 8, which says that God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Now it is true that God is good. Indeed, as the scripture shows us, God is good and he gives good things to his children. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us so. But we must remember, friends, that these truths don't mean that God is promising us only good things and that only good things will happen in our lives if we believe in him. For instance, in the Old Testament, when Job had lost almost everything except his life and was in misery, what did he say? That the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The author tells us that what Job said was right. It says that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with doing wrong. Now imagine a man who wakes up one morning and all his riches are taken away, his family is destroyed, his children are dead, most of his things are stolen. And what is his conclusion? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be his holy name. Did you know that Proverbs 18.17 tells us that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him? In other words, what I'm saying is that if someone who claims to speak for God comes and tells you something that sounds good, no matter how good it sounds, you must still examine what he or she is saying. First Thessalonians 5.19-22 tells us that we are to test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every appearance of evil. We must make sure that we are getting the whole truth and not just believe something because it sounds true and it promises good things that is not good enough. It is a mixture of truth and error. And as long as there is that mixture, then what you are receiving is not true, faithful, biblical teaching. And that is one challenge or one problem with the prosperity gospel. But let me share with you a second one. The second one is that prosperity gospel preachers often misquote the Bible to support their message. 
for them to make their message sound good and appealing and timely, they will use Bible passages but which have been twisted out of their context. It is good of course to quote the Bible as long as we understand what it really means. The most important way to test the way somebody uses the Bible is to read the verse in its context. Usually that's as simple as reading the whole verse or even better, the verses that come before that verse and after that very verse. Let me give you some examples on how prosperity gospel preachers use certain Bible verses and then especially share with you what the Bible actually does teach concerning these verses. One of the popular verses is what we find in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And usually you will hear believers use this verse quite often, especially prosperity gospel preachers. But if you know this verse well, does this really mean that God guarantees that Christians should all experience success every day? And the answer is no. Reading this statement in its context corrects the error. The Apostle Paul says in this, that and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So the good for which God works all things together, at least according to Paul, is his purpose of those who love him. Now the question is, what is that purpose? What is that purpose for which God is making all things work for good for those who love him? And the next verse tells us what the purpose is. Verse 29 says, that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And from verses 29, we can easily tell that the good purpose for which God is working all things together for us is the purpose of making us like Christ, perfect in holiness and love. Of course, bad things will happen to us in this earthly life, as you yourself can attest if you are a believer, I am sure that you have encountered or been involved in bad things already. But if we love God, he will use those bad things to mold us to be more like Jesus. So what you have here is not God stopping bad things from happening to believers. But God using the bad things that happen to believers to conform them to the image of Christ Jesus. You remember that psalm about the Lord is my shepherd, where the psalmist says that even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because the Lord is with me. Now, notice that the psalmist is not saying I will escape the valley of the shadow of death. He says even though I go through it, the point is not escape. The point is when I go through it, the Lord will be with me and therefore I have no reason to fear. In this very same chapter, the Apostle Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any normal difficulty in life even lack of adequate food and clothing separate true believers from Christ's love. And in verse 37, Paul's answer is no. In fact, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, does that mean that tribulations and distress and famine will not come our way? They sure will come. Paul is not saying that they will not come. But he's saying even though they come, no matter what it is they do, they will not separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Now, here is a second verse that you may hear prosperity gospel preachers use. We come to Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, where the Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is, by dying on the cross for us. Prosperity gospel preachers often claim that poverty, sickness, and other troubles are the curse of the law. So Christ has delivered us from them. But the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything here in Galatians or actually anywhere else about God promising believers physical healing or even financial prosperity. The opposite of a curse is a blessing. So the question is, what blessing does Christ's death bring to us instead of the curse? And Paul answers this question in the very next verse. He says that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that is verse 14. So from this we learn that the blessing really isn't physical health or wealth. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the promise. That is the promise. But prosperity gospel preachers will tell us that we are entitled to silver and gold and riches of all kinds. But as you look at the context of Galatians chapter 3, there is nothing to suggest anything of the kind. Rather, that believers have been redeemed from the curse of the law so that they may receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Now, another verse that I would like to share with you before I bring this to a close is uh, from 3 John verse 2. 3 John verse 2 says that in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health. Now, here is a letter that is being written by the Apostle John to his friend, a man named Gaius. And as he introduces the letter, he prays or he wishes that in all respects, his friend and brother in Christ, Gaius, would prosper and be in good health even as his soul prospers. Now, most prosperity gospel preachers will use this verse and claim that believers have a right to access health and wealth on account of this verse. But if you look at this verse carefully, there are a number of things that jump out of the text. Number one, of course, there is nothing wrong with praying for people to be prosperous and healthy. Number two is that John is writing to a beloved friend and praying for him. So for John, this prayer it does not guarantee that there will be an automatic answer from God because it's a prayer. The verse is not a promise. The verse is not a guarantee of anything. It is a prayer, and being a prayer means that God is not obligated to answer it. He may or he may not because it is a request. Now notice that again, John is not praying for himself to receive health and wealth. John is praying for someone else. And he is also not telling his friend Gaius, to claim his own health and prosperity as though God guaranteed these just for being a Christian. What we have here is not a decree, it's not a prophecy, 
It's not even a revelation. It's a prayer or a petition from one brother or for on behalf of another, wishing and praying that just as he has prospered in spirit, the Lord would also prosper him physically. Does that mean that Gaius automatically became rich? No. Does that mean that Gaius was supposed to declare and decree that he was now wealthy and healthy? No. Does the verse tell us whether Gaius ever realized these things? No. But the point here is that a prayer was made by the Apostle John on behalf of his friend and brother in Christ Gaius that he would prosper. So what you have here in these verses is a case of scripture twisting. Someone reading scripture and making it say whatever he wanted the scripture to say. We must remember that this is a very, very dangerous thing. That we are called to be faithful to the not only the reading of scripture, but to the interpretation, to the explanation, and to the application of the same. And that God will be committed to his word as he has revealed it, not necessarily as men have interpreted it. It is also important, brothers and sisters, to remember that we have been called to a life of walking with God as we look forward to the eternal life that he has prepared for us. Not necessarily the things of this world. As we saw at the beginning, we see Moses turn his back on the what he calls the fleeting pleasures of sin and for a season that are temporary in nature and being identified with God's people because he was looking forward to his reward. And his reward is not wealth and health because he already had those in the palace. His reward is the eternal life that he is looking for. Here is a man who has understood that even great wealth of this world has an expiry date, but our God will last forever and with eternal pleasures at his right hand. And so he prefers to seek those permanent eternal pleasures rather than the things of this world that are passing away. As I remember Moses and as I reflect on what I have just said, I can only think of this wonderful hymn that was written some time back which says that I would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I would rather be his than have riches untold. I would rather have Jesus than houses on all land. I would rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be a king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I would rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. May this be your prayer, brothers and sisters in Christ, as you pursue the eternal pleasures at the right hand of the Father. May you never lose sight of the eternal rewards or for the temporary enjoyment of the materialism of this world. May you never sacrifice the eternal at the altar of the immediate. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you meditate on these things. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.